thinking a lot about pride lately. You know, the whole world basically revolves around pride. Last month, I don't know if you or anybody was paying attention, but last month was called Pride Month in the United States. Now, why is it called Pride Month? Do you know why it's called Pride Month, Josh? Because this was the, the month that was dedicated for the LGBTQ community, Pride Month. The homosexual movement in this country is called the Pride Movement. You know, I I just think that's just an amazing thing. It's very spiritual in my mind to devote an entire month to pride and the associated lifestyle that our Bible condemns as a sexual perversion and a deviation from God's natural order. But this is what pride's all about. Pride is man's way. Um, So we're going to talk about that today. One thing I want to put on the table right off the bat, we all have pride in our lives. It's endemic to our nature. All of us have pride to greater or lesser extent. So pride is part of this fallen nature. Um, I think um, I think of that verse in Second Corinthians. You don't have to turn there, but it says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, who's the God of this age? Does anybody know? It's Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And to large part, it's this pride that that blinds people. Pride is central to Satan's nature. So take your Bibles and go to Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel 28. And in verse 13, Ezekiel 28, verse 13. Now, this is uh, just to give you a heads up. This is written about a, the king of Tyre, literally. OK, and you you'll if you look in the context of this, it talks about the king of Tyre. But it is by revelation and it connotes a higher truth. And this higher truth deals with Lucifer. This passage talks about the nature of Lucifer. So in Ezekiel 28, look in verse 13, it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God, and you walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Now listen to this. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. That's quite a passage, isn't it? And that speaks of the archangel Lucifer. There were three archangels, boys. There was Lucifer, Gabriel, and Michael. The top angel was Lucifer, but Lucifer became obsessed 
with his his own self, his own beauty, and it corrupted him, and he was thrown out of heaven. So the idea here is, is that when we talk about pride, we talk about self. Self is at the center of pride, okay? Self. Go to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14. And look in verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Who is this talking about? Again, we're talking about Lucifer. It says, You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. So this is the pride of Lucifer. And what's the pronoun that we keep seeing here? I, me, self, this whole idea. He wanted to be like the Most High God so that he no longer required God. He wanted to be independent from God. And this is the center of Lucifer's sin, his pride. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, and look in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, who's the serpent? This is the devil. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. So he directly contradicts God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the devil is saying to Adam and Eve, God is not to be trusted. God doesn't have your best will at heart. God is keeping you from your full potential, right? Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So in other words, they followed Satan's temptation. And what did they find? That they were stripped of God's protection, stripped of God's wholeness, and they were alone. They were independent from God. So this this temptation, you shall be as God's. That was what Satan used in order to entice Adam and Eve to sin. As gods, they would no longer be dependent upon God. And this is what pride, at its essence, is. That you're independent from God. That you are God. And just as pride was at the center of Lucifer's sin, pride is at the center of ours as well. Go to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. Jesus was uh, talking to the the Pharisees, his disciples had been out picking corn and eating it, and they were getting reproved because they were eating corn with unwashing hands, right? And Jesus said in verse 20, 720, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I'm reading from the English Standard, by the way. Uh, All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So it's endemic in our nature now. This is fallen man. Within fallen man, within the heart of man, he has all these things. And as these things manifest themselves, as they come out of a man's heart or a woman's heart, they defile that person, okay? So the interesting thing is, is that the outward senses person is always looking to circumstances or people or events to explain why situations are happening. They don't understand that it's from within them that these things are coming. That sin dwells within. Sin is very much a part of us. The Bible goes on later, and you don't have to turn there, but in Jeremiah 17, it says the heart is deceitful above all things, and what? It is desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? So pride, when we talk about pride, pride lives within the heart. It lives within each of our hearts to some extent or another. We can either confront that pride with light, or we can unleash that pride. Go to First John chapter 2. I'm going to be reading this passage out of the King James, but you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. First John chapter 2, and look in verse 15. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That if you love the, the things of this age, the, the word world there would be tr- better translated age. Okay, this the time that we live in. If you love the things of this age, the love of the Father cannot be in you at the same time. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John Shanehite translates this, the pride of lifestyle, which I thought was interesting, is not of the Father, but is in the world. <clears throat> and the world passes away, and the lust thereof But he that does, the will of God abideth forever. So if you want to have legacy and purpose and meaning to your life that spans not just the, you know, the the entirety of your, your physical life on earth, but for all eternity, then you do God's commandments. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that is spiritually how God describes the world. And we can certainly see that. As I keep saying, pride is endemic to the fallen nature of man. We are surrounded by pride. It is everywhere. And it's a sneaky sin. A lot of time, pride will stick its head up in our life. We won't even realize it. Kind of interesting that um, uh, if you think about it, uh, we're afraid of pride in other people's lives, but a lot of times we don't even see it in our own lives. And that's why it's so important for us to spend time in Scripture, because God will show it to you. Even while I was putting this teaching together, I was getting confronted with the pride in my own life. Derek Prince defines this as what I had indicated before. Pride is seeking to be independent from God. As it was with Adam, it's not a denial of God's sovereignty in the universe, so much as it's simply a person's decision that he or she can do without God, that God is no longer needed. That's pride. That's pride. And that's what, actually, that's the essence of what pride is all about. In our Christian walks, the Holy Spirit within us confronts this pride and fills us instead with the antidote to pride, which is meekness and humbleness. 
meekness and humbleness. We should be shedding this pride as the Holy Spirit leads us into a progressively more and more holy life. Okay? We put off the old man, we put on the new man. You see that? Pride and holiness are opposites. They're opposites. You can't have a holy life and a prideful life. And being ever watchful, we have to make sure that we don't develop a root of pride in our lives. We don't produce a root of pride. What do I mean by a root? A root is something that draws nutrients, draws nutrients and provides the tree or the bush with nutrients. Well, we can't afford to have a root of pride in our lives. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs 8. So how does God feel about pride? Proverbs 8, look at verse 13. It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Well, I thought we weren't supposed to hate anything, right? Well, we're supposed to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. That's what God says. God hates pride. He loathes it. Pride fully motivates the devil to oppose God. That's why God hates it. And God also understands that pride is what separates his children from him. Now, I'm going to read something here, and, and uh, I, th- I just want everybody to screw your thinking caps on. This was written by Martin Luther. It's a kind of a modernized version of something that Martin Luther read. But I think it's very enlightening. So I want you to bear with me on this. Uh, This is dealing with the twofold purpose of the law, the Old Testament law, and how it relates to pride, how it relates to pride. Um, When I was thinking of including this in this teaching, I was just thinking about the destructive nature of pride and how God gave us the Old Testament law to try to ratchet down this inclination of mankind, this fallen nature of mankind. Uh, This comes from a study that Martin Luther did on the book of Galatians. Okay, before I get started, um, I'm going to read. You don't have to turn there, but first Timothy chapter one and in verse eight, it says, we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreaker and the rebel, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious for those who, who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Okay, so the law is made for the lawless, and that's something we should always keep in our minds and hearts. Now, a lot of times people say, well, you know, there's no purpose for the believer to put himself under the law. If you're law, lawless and, and doing things like that that you ought not to, you absolutely are under the law. That's the law. The law is saying, stop doing that. So this is what Martin Luther said. He said, the law has a twofold purpose. One purpose is civil. God has ordained civil law to punish crime. Every law is given to restrain sin. Does it not then make a person righteous? No. In refraining from murder, adultery, theft, and other sins, I do so under compulsion because I fear the consequences. Jail, the noose, the electric chair. These restrain me as iron bars restrain a lion or a bear. Otherwise, a lion or or the bear would tear everything to pieces. Such forceful restraint cannot be regarded as righteous. Rather, it's an indication of 
unrighteousness. As a wild beast is tied to keep it from running amok, so the law bridles mad and furious man to keep him from running wild. The need for restraint shows plainly enough that those who need the law are not righteous, but wicked men who are fit to be tied. No, the law does not justify. The first purpose of the law, accordingly, is to restrain the wicked. The devil gets people into all kinds of scrapes. Therefore, God instituted governments, parents, laws, restrictions, and civil ordinances. At least they help to tie the devil's hands so that he does not rage up and down in the earth. This civil restraint by the law is intended by God for the preservation of all things, particularly for the good of the gospel, that it should not be hindered too much by the tumult of the wicked. The second purpose of the law is spiritual and divine. Paul describes this spiritual purpose of the law when he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, i.e., to reveal to a person his sin, blindness, misery, his ignorance, his hatred and contempt of God, his death, hell, and condemnation. So it revealed sin in us, right? Does everybody understand that? Okay, this is the principal purpose of the law and its most valuable contribution. As long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, thief, he would swear that he was righteous. How is God going to humble such a person except by the law? The law is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the lightning of God's wrath to bring down the proud and shameless hypocrite. When the law was instituted on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by lightning, by storms, by the sound of trumpets to tear to pieces the monster called pride. As long as a person thinks he is right, he is going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He is going to hate God, despise his grace and mercy, and ignore the promises of of Christ. The gospel of the free forgiveness of sins through Christ will never appeal to the self-righteous. This monster of pride, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that is what the law is, a big axe. Accordingly, the proper use and function of the law is to threaten until the conscience is scared stiff. Now, how about that? I thought that was really well said, really well said, that mankind, left to his own devices, needs to be restrained by law. He needs to be restrained. And the thing that is at the center of all his sinfulness is this idea, this this thing called pride, pridefulness. uh, Martin Luther referred to it as a beast, a beast of pride. So this is important. Go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. Many people will be familiar with this verse. I I love it. It's one of my favorite. I'm going to read the King James version of this because I like it. I like how it reads better. Jeremiah 9:23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, there's a lot of things that we can boast in. 
There's a lot of things we can boast in. Remember what I said earlier, that, that it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That people want to boast in who they are. I'm a self-made man. Look at me. And the word of God says, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in this, that you know and you understand God. How about that? Go to First Peter chapter 5. I was thinking about pride, and I was thinking about how pride uh, finds its way into the church, into the church leadership a lot of times. Um, it finds its way into the church leadership through self-promotion. I was thinking about this verse, First uh, Peter chapter 5, look in verse 1. It says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. What's one of the most important things of a shepherd? Is he thinking about himself? No. Who is he thinking about? The sheep. Be a shepherd. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you get to. You're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, not eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. Examples. So this is an elder speaking to a fellow, fellow elder, and Peter says, take care of your people. Take care of your people. Not as a hireling would. Everybody know what a hireling is? Somebody, a hired hand, a hireling. You wouldn't take care of the people as somebody who's just doing it for money. You're not doing it out of reluctant obligation. You're not doing it as an opportunity to be an authoritarian, but you are doing it primarily as an example because you care for the sheep. I was thinking of uh, Paul and what he says in Thessalonians where he says, for we know, brothers beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply in words, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So that Paul represented what God expected. And he was an example to his flock. Look in verse 4. It says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men... In the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with what? Humility, that you're willing to listen, that you're willing to submit. It says, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God, what? He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, it's the Lord who is the one who's responsible for exalting any of us. I can develop myself, certainly. I can go to school. I can spend time in the Bible. I can do a number of things. But it's the Lord, ultimately, that I should be relying on to exalt me. As leaders in the church, one of the biggest responsibilities that we have is what? To stay humble. To stay humble. To clothe ourselves with humility. There are far too many self-promoting Christian leaders in the church. And this is just pride. It's pride. The Bible teaches us we can't have two masters. If you are promoting yourselves, you cannot promote Christ. So if I'm thinking to myself, well, how do I measure up as a leader in the church? There's only one person that we should look to, and that's the shepherd, chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. 
When we exalt ourselves, it's oh, it always ends badly for us. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 14 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A.W. Tozer said of church leadership, he said, quote, Promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is currently so common as to excite little notice. It's happening everywhere. People going around saying, look at me, look at me. That's self-promotion. That's uh, why I love that song. Uh, who um, Jesus is, um, he's the star of the show. Who, what's, who sings that? Toby Mac, the star of the show. The star of the show is Jesus. Psalm 75, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 75 says, For the promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one, and he setteth up another. I think that's important for all of us to keep in mind. For us, Jesus must be the star of the show. He should be the face of the ministry, so to speak. You know, when I was going through the ministry, through the core, um, one of the jobs that I got was housekeeping. And my job was cleaning toilets. I cleaned a lot of toilets. And I remember when I got the job, how unappreciated I felt that I had been assigned this job. I felt like my talents were being squandered, that, you know, the person cleaning toilets should be the person whose function in the body of Christ was toilet cleaning. (laughs) Ah. But out of all the jobs I had, that was probably one of the most valuable because I learned the most valuable lesson. Humility. Humility. The job had to be done, and there's nothing special about me. I should be doing it as much as anybody else. And I needed that lesson. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. That ought to be our heart towards ministry. Some of us have long suits that others don't. That's fine, right? You know, I teach. I teach perhaps better than some, not as good as others. Some people are good teachers. Some people are not. Okay, well, it makes sense to have the teachers teaching, right? It makes sense to have other people doing other things in the body of Christ. But I should not promote myself. This isn't a self-promoting thing. It is a function. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look in verse 12. It says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. See, a lot of times we get among other people and we say, boy, I'd really like his job. I don't like my job so much. He's got such a better job. And then what happens? Well, we start envying another person. Look in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Look in verse 17. seven seventeen. It says, Nevertheless, each one of us should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Look, God has a job for you, a specific job for you. Do that job. That's what we've been called to. Don't be looking at other people and saying, well, how come they get a better job than I do? That's not what we're supposed to be doing here. God is responsible for my calling, my calling. Genuine advancement and promotion come from God. It's never snatched at. No one has an inherent right to a position. It's the Lord's church, isn't it? 
He places men and women where he sees fit. You know, I think about Jesus and, and, uh, and John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist say, he must succeed and I must recede. There are times where God's calling you to step up into a position while at the same time he's calling somebody to step down from a position. Does that reflect badly? Is it like you're getting fired or demoted? No, it's as the Lord directs. That's how this thing works. It says in verse 6, as we keep reading, um, I'm sorry, I, I told you to change, uh, go to someplace else. This was uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, look in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Pride is very position-oriented. You know, when I go into work every day, I see this sort of nonsense going on every day. People jockeying for position and people who envy those who have what they want. And we just can't afford to allow this in our hearts. And you know why? Because it it's prideful. That's what pride is. Pride and envy. Anybody who has been passed up for promotion knows what I'm talking about. And when you've been passed up for promotion, you're forced to make some decisions, aren't you? What you're going to do with your heart. Are you going to envy the person who got the promotion instead of you? Are you going to see yourself as a victim? Are you going to fill your soul with excuses and blame the one who got advanced instead of you? Or do you thank God that he gave you yet one more day to glorify him? That's what it's all about, isn't it? Bring glory to God. We expect to see that sort of ambition in the world. We don't expect to see that kind of ambition in the church. We shouldn't be talking about, well, who gets to be in charge? Who gets the final word? The fact is, we know that the Lord gets the final word if it's a godly church, right? Go to Proverbs chapter 16, Proverbs 16, and look at verse 17. It says, the highway of the upright avoids evil. He who guards his way guards his life. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share, share plunder with the proud. Whoever gives heed to, the instruction, in, to instruction prospers, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Isn't that something? So that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's trusting that God's got your best interest in mind. Not only your best interest, but the best interest of the church. The best interest of the church. I can't help but think of Moses. Remember that? We were reading a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 11 where Moses chose to suffer the affliction of the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, that he was willing to step down and be genuine than to step up and be artificial. And that's what we should be. At the heart of humbleness is contentment that comes with trusting God, that God has you in the place where you belong, right? That gives you contentment, the trust that I am where God wants me to be. My job is to stay humble. It's to stay humble. Go to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13. I just think, you know, it's, it's so underrated, I think, the, the destructive power of discontent, being discontented. Look in verse, uh, Proverbs 13, look in verse 10. It says, pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Pride causes quarrels. You know, that's one of the things that we see in both the Corinthian church and the Philippian church is that they were quarreling and fighting and arguing. And at the root of it is pride. It's pride. It's ambition, envy, discontentedness. James chapter 4. 
you know, I think in Corinthians, that whole section in Corinthians one, where it says, you know, the house of Chloe told us that there was quarreling among you. He said, for some say, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas. You know, is Christ divided? No. James chapter four. Look at verse five. Chapter four, verse five. It says, or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? This is the human spirit. Did God cause the you know, God caused this envy or the spirit to live in us that he required to be envious. John Shanehite said God caused us to have or made us humans with a human spirit. That is our inner attitudes and dispositions of mind. Sadly, that original making was changed when Adam sinned. And as a result, our fallen human spirit lusts, envies and sins. See that? But in verse six, he goes on to say, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's why it's so important for us to stay humble, to stay humble. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee. So when you're prideful, when you are manifesting pridefulness, what happens? Well, you're not resisting the devil. You're yielding to the devil, right? But when we submit to God, we are being humble. We are forsaking our pridefulness and we're walking in the light as he is light. Verse eight, it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Pride keeps us from being close to God. Pridefulness does. Verse nine, grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, I always wondered about that grieve, mourn and wail. What is that talking about? Well, that means take this seriously. Take this seriously. This is a serious point. Submit to God. Stop promoting yourself. Submit to God. God will make sure that you get to where you need to go. Okay. You know, I, th- I talk to people at work and they got, well, I've got my five-year plan and I got my 10-year plan and I got my 15-year plan. How about you? Uh, I got my day plan, <laughs> right? I have the if the Lord tarries plan, right? I don't spend a lot of time planning out my life. I go where the Lord has me go and do what the Lord has me do. Go to Matthew chapter five, <laughs> the one day plan. Everybody's familiar with this verse. And look in verse five, it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, so I'm going to close today um, with a passage from Tozer. Um, I really like this and I thought it fit very well with this teaching. And so I want you to sit back. Um, No Bible verses here. He's just talking. But listen really carefully here, because I think this really addresses the whole issue. It says into a world like this, the sound of Jesus's word words comes wonderful and strange, a visitation from above. And he's talking about what we just read. The meek shall inherit the earth. It is well that he spoke for no one else could have done it as well. And it is good that we listen. His words are the essence of truth. He is not offering an opinion. Jesus never uttered opinions. He never guessed. He knew and he knows. His words are not as Solomon's were, the sum of sound wisdom and the result of keen observation. 
He spoke out of, the, out of the fullness of his sonship, and his words are the very truth itself. He is the only one who could say, blessed, with complete authority, for he is the blessed one come from the world above to confer blessedness upon mankind. And his words were supported by deeds mightier than any performed on this earth by any other man. It is wisdom for us to listen. As was often so with Christ, he used the word meek in a brief, crisp sentence. And not till some time later did he go on to explain it. In the same book of Matthew, he tells us more about it and applies it to our lives. Quote, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, unquote. Here we have two things standing in contrast to each other, a burden and a rest. The burden is not a local one, peculiar to those first hearers, but one which is borne by the whole human race. It consists not of political oppression or poverty or hard work. It is far deeper than that. It is felt by the rich as well as the poor, for it is something from which wealth and idleness can never deliver us. The burden borne by mankind is a heavy and crushing thing. The, world, uh, the word Jesus used means a load carried or toil borne to the point of exhaustion. Rest is simple release from that burden. It is not something that we do. It is what comes to us when we, uh, from what we cease to do. His own meekness, that is rest. Let us explain our burden. It is altogether an interior one. It attacks the heart and the mind and reaches the body only from within. First, there is the burden of pride. The labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. As long as you set yourself up as a little god to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have an inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. Continue this fight through the years, and the burden becomes intolerable. Yet the sons of earth are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against them, cringing under every criticism, smarting under every fancied slight, tossing sleepless if another is preferred before them. Such a burden as this is not necessary to bear. Jesus called us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. He develops towards himself a kindly sense of humor and learns to say, Oh, so you've been overlooked. They have placed someone else before you. 
They have whispered that you are pretty small stuff after all. And now you feel hurt because the world is saying about you the very thing that you have been saying about yourself. Only yesterday you were telling God that you were nothing, a mere worm of the dust. Where is your consistency? Come on, humble yourself and cease to care what men think. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is weak and helpless as God has declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than the angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He is willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, he will have attained a place of soul rest. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. Then also he will get deliverance from the burden of pretense. By this I mean not hypocrisy, but the common human desire to put the best foot forward and to hide from the world our real inward poverty. For sin has played many evil tricks upon us, and one has been the infusing into us the false sense of shame. There is hardly a man or woman who dares to be just what he or she is without doctoring up some impression. The fear of being found out gnaws like a rodent within their hearts. The man of culture is haunted by the fear that he will someday come upon a man more cultured than he himself. The learned man fears to meet a man more learned than he. The rich man sweats under the fear that his clothes or his car or his house will someday be made to look cheap by comparison with those of another rich man. So-called society runs by a motivation not higher than this, and the poorer classes on a level are a little better. Let no one smile this off. These burdens are real, and little by little they kill the victims of this evil and unnatural way of life. And the psychology creates by years of this kind of thing makes true meekness seem as unreal as a dream, as aloof, as a star. To all the victims of the gnawing disease, Jesus said, ye must become as little children. For little children do not compare. They receive direct enjoyment from what they have without relating it to something else or someone else. Only as they get older and sin begins to stir within their hearts do jealousy and envy appear. Then they are unable to enjoy what they have if someone else has something larger or better. At that early age, the galling burden comes down to their tender soul or upon their tender souls, and it never leaves them till Jesus sets them free. Another source of burden is artificiality. 
I am sure that most people live in secret fear that someday they will be careless and by chance an enemy or a friend will be allowed to peep inside their poor, empty souls so they never relax. Bright people are tense and alert in fear that they may be trapped into saying something common or stupid. Traveled people are afraid that they may meet some Marco Polo who is able to describe some remote place where they have never been. It says this unnatural condition is part of our sad heritage of sin. But in our day, it is aggravated by our whole way of life. Advertising is keenly based upon the habit of pretense. Courses are offered in this or that field of human learning, frankly appealing to the victim's desire to shine at a party. Books are sold, clothes and cosmetics are peddled by playing continually upon this desire to appear what we are not. Artificiality is one curse that will drop away the moment we kneel at Jesus' feet and surrender ourselves to his meekness. Then we will not care what people think of us so long as God is pleased. Then what we are will be everything. What we appear will take its place far down the scale of interest for us. Apart from sin, we have nothing of which to be ashamed. Only an evil desire to shine makes us want to appear other than we are. The heart of the world is breaking under this load of pride and pretense. There is no release from our burdens apart from the meekness of Christ. Good, keen reasoning may help slightly, but so strong is this vice that if we push it down one place, it will come up another. To men and women everywhere, Jesus says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. The rest he offers is the rest of meekness. The blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. It will take some courage at first, but the needed grace will come as we learn that we are sharing this new and easy yoke with the strong Son of God himself. He calls it my yoke, and he walks at the other end while we walk at the other. So isn't that cool? I thought that was pretty exceptional. So anyway, that's uh, what I wanted to share today. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. And Father, we thank you for this fellowship. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can put aside the pride of life, that we can put aside the pretense of trying to act like we are something that we are not. And that, Father, that we can walk in the genuineness that you've called us to be, that we are children of God, and that, Father, we are blessed to walk side by side with you and Jesus Christ. So we thank you for this, and thank you, Father, for just a genuine life. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.
My value fixed my ransom pay. 